All right, so tonight, um, well, we've got enough stuff. I don't, I'm not sure yet if we're going to make it a two-session psalm of ascent or one. So let's just see how it goes and may have to cut it off somewhere in there. So we could be 20 minutes or we could be an hour and 20 minutes. So nobody wants the 120, so let's, let's see what we can do, okay? Um, so one of the things that I've come to do here, because I still don't know everybody who's home folks and those who are visitors I'm still you know I've been here long enough now I catch faces and I do know uh, I made some progress on names but every once in a while I'll see somebody and I'm just not sure if this is their first time here or if they've been here forever and so that's a little bit awkward and I found the best thing for me to do is say have we met before Um, but what I do with visitors is I ask this question so where's home for you Right, so let me ask you that. Where's home for you? Heaven? <laughs> but not today. <laughs> yeah, so see, there's room for interpretation in there, like where are you from? But Teresa and I have lived all over the state, and so when people ask us, where's home for you? We've come to say uh, wherever we are. Okay, it's not a bad approach unless you happen to be in a really bad place that you don't want it to be home for you. Um, So maybe the best answer is home is wherever God has you. Let's develop that. Psalm 132 is where we are. And this is a long one, 18 verses, which um, in some of our Bible studies, that's like three weeks, four weeks worth of verses. Um, and so I want to kind of work our way through it, but I want, to, I want you to kind of be thinking in your head about home uh, and, and the comfort that comes with being at home. The difference between visiting somebody, staying with them. Teresa's going to be going uh, to spend a week in East Texas in a couple of weeks, uh, grandkids stuff and son's graduating from culinary school and some of those kind of things. So she's going to be gone for a week. And I'll assure you that I will be more comfortable at our home than she will be where she's going to be staying. Right? I mean, doesn't that, isn't that true? It's one of the, we make our home to be comfortable for us. Um, but that, that might well be the introduction for a spiritual struggle, what I just said. If home is where God has you and the tendency is to be comfortable in the home that you're in, uh, what happens when God says, we're going to change your home a little bit? So, Psalm 132 is where we find ourselves. I'm going to, I'm going to give you some principles, and I'm going, to, I'm going to lean on you to help me teach tonight, okay? Especially those who have been at our church for a while. Uh, there are some things I want you to help with, so we'll walk through it. Psalm 132, beginning in verse 1, it is another of the Song of Ascents. And the psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. What I want you to notice so far is this is a reflection prayer. It's interesting that the psalmist and the psalm itself looks backwards and is dealing with 
David and some of the stuff with David. Let's keep reading verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, and we found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. I'm going to stop reading there. We'll come back to verses 11 and following in a little while, maybe. Um, So let's dig in a little bit. The reflection part of this psalm is the one that looks backwards. David is the point of reference. We don't know who wrote this and we don't know when they wrote it, but clearly it's a backward look. And that's the ground that this psalm is written from. So here's a principle that I want us to hang on to, all right? I'm going to give you several principles as we work our way through this passage uh, tonight and potentially next week. Here, Here it is. The first principle is that when we come to worship, we must acknowledge that that we have inherited. I'm not talking about physical goods that we've inherited. I'm talking about the history that we have, the faith history that we have. When we come to worship, and let's put it right down in the lap of who we all are. When we come to First Baptist Church to worship, one of the things that we must do is embrace our past. That faith tradition that we have inherited inherited, has to mean something for us as we step into this. Let let me put it in the terms of this. These pilgrims, remember the Psalms of Ascent, children of Israel, they're moving from the countryside to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship there. One of those three festivals they were required, the men were required to get to every year. Uh, As they're making their way in, these Psalms became the songbook for them. And so they're rehearsing these great truths of their faith as they make their way to Jerusalem. Now, with that in mind, these pilgrims here are either in Jerusalem already or they are in transit, okay? And so their point of reference, I'm going to assume that they're on the trail to get there, but we don't know that. They may well be standing inside the gates of the city or even at the temple, but whatever the case is, as they come in, they're looking backward. I think that's a significant thing, and so let me just ask it this way. Uh, Why are they in Jerusalem. Why are they going to Jerusalem? The requirement of adult men okay. Okay. Let me change the inflection of the question. That's the right answer, by the way. But I'm going to change the inflection, which means I'm asking a different question with the same words. Why are they there? Why aren't they in Gaza? Why aren't they in Lebanon doing this? Because is it not true they could worship anywhere? We say that, right? I can wor- I've heard it many times. I can worship on a deer stand as well as I can worship in church. I don't believe it either, but that's what I've heard from a lot of people through the years. In Jerusalem, right? Yeah. So the reason that they're in Jerusalem, now, they're in Jerusalem so that they can worship as required. 
But the reason they're doing that in Jerusalem is because David said, this is where we're going to do it. All right? I know that that sounds self-evident, but stick with me for a minute. Um, Right. That's right. That's right. We're going to go back to the passages that kind of work with that. Yes, sir. Right. Right. The what again? Okay. 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 So here's another question. Same basic question, but I'm giving you three different angles of it. Why did David choose that site? Why did David choose that site? That's part of the answer. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, that's not a bad reason, right? All right, so hang on to that because we're going to come back to that too, as well as the fact that God blessed that when Solomon completed the temple and God showed up. But let me just add one other piece to this, okay? David made the choice for Jerusalem to be the center of worship for Israel. Okay? That's the background of this. Now, probably David had two things in mind in doing that. On a political front, let's not forget, David was a man after God's own heart, to be sure. He was an incredible warrior. All of those kind of things. He was a sinner like us. That should make us all feel a little bit uh, uh, included, I guess. But um, David also was a very savvy leader. And he is what, he's the one who pulled all of the stuff together. Saul tried to get the, the, the clans and the tribes all on the same page, and he had marginal success with that. But David's the one, when he stepped in and he rallied everybody, and one of the things he needed to do was to have a central place where they worshiped together. It was not just a political capital, although he wanted Jerusalem to be that. It was also their religious center. All right? I know that sounds like I'm kind of picking at, at straws there, but that is a significant thing for the children of Israel. Bob? In our study of kings and prior to that, another facet of that is that when he prayed to God and said, I want you to make your house here in Jerusalem, which you had your built. Right. But he also said, and I want you to bless my which meant that from then on, all the kings of Judah would come from David's seed. Yeah. So there's a twofold relationship going on. That's there. right. He didn't want to do this for God, but he wanted God to do this for him. That's right. And so no longer was a prophet anointing the next king, it was out of the seed of David, yes. the kings of Judah. Yeah. Critical observation, that one. And if we get through my notes tonight, then we're going to see that again, all right? But maybe next week before we get to it, it'll just depend on what happens here in the next few minutes, all right? So let me, let me see if I can double down on this because one of the key parts of the, that we see in this um, is in, uh, where was the ark mentioned in what we read? Anybody remember what verse that was? Uh, verse 8, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let's go back. Remember the point that, that we're making, that we're 
trying to establish and then we're going to apply is that when we come to worship, we need to embrace the heritage that we have and that that we have inherited from our predecessors in this place of worship. Okay? We're not the children of Israel. We're not going to Jerusalem to worship. But we come here to do that, and there's a rich history here that we have to embrace. Okay? So I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but let's go backwards a little bit just so that we can establish what, Dave, what is referred to in this psalm as the ark. So keep your place here. Go back to Exodus chapter 25. And I need somebody to read Exodus 25 through 30. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, in Exodus 25, it really kind of starts in verse 10 where he starts talking about the ark of the covenant. And this is where it's being made and, or it's about to be made. And so God is giving us part of the law that he gives. Uh, here are the guidelines you need to build the ark. All right, that's 25 and verse 10. But the significance of that, we can drop down the verses 21 and 22, especially 22. And here's what we, well, somebody read those two verses. Exodus 25, verse 21 and 22. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet you with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Okay, did you catch the significance of that ark? What's the significance of the ark? I will meet with you. God says, I will meet with you there. So this is, this is one of the most holy elements of the whole wilderness wandering stuff and and the traveling tabernacle, if you will, the whole thing that happened, the tent of meeting and all of those kind of things. The ark is that holy place where God promised that he would show up and give instructions for his people. Big time stuff. So we're going to have a history with David and that ark in just a little bit. But before we get to that, let's let the ark be what it is. And as it's infused into the teaching of Psalm 132, there's gold in that for us as it relates to our spiritual growth and development, right? These pilgrims are making their way across a wilderness area. Well, I mean, it's not much different than El Paso when you get right down to it. A lot of the topography and all that stuff is there. So wilderness might be pushing it a little bit. Some of them might have even come from places where there was trees, where there were trees and grass and water. But for the most part, they're coming from the outskirts. And they make their way in, but they're not going to see a box that was crafted. They're going to a temple. They're going to a place that is the, the ark writ large as a building with all of the ornate stuff that Solomon put into it. An incredible thing. All right, all of that, let's wrap it up this way and say they're looking backwards as part of their worship. It is a significant part of their worship because God spoke to those people. They're part of a long heritage of people with whom God had spoken, with whom God had showed up, with whom God had done incredible things to get them to the point where they were. This is no small thing that's happening in these verses. So... The principle, again, is when we come to worship, we must embrace the heritage that we have, that, that faith heritage that we have inherited from those who came before us. All right? Everybody with me on the point? 
All right? So let's hear a little bit about that faith heritage here. Let me do a couple of things with you to trigger your thinking a little bit. Uh, a year ago tomorrow is when the search committee from this church came and sat down with me and Teresa in Beaumont a year ago tomorrow. And uh, so I've been reworking in my head some of those steps, right? Because by this time last year, Teresa and I were going, could it be? Don't know if it could be. Might could be. Don't really know. Um, and I'm sure the committee was probably at the same point. And, um, but within a couple of weeks from this day a year ago, uh, it was becoming very clear what God wanted. And so one of the things that, one of the first things that I did with Dick was uh, I, once we knew that y'all wanted us to come in view of a call, I asked him if there were any written histories of our church because I knew that one of the things that I needed to do along the lines of this point that we're making here is I needed to become familiar and conversant with the history of this church, the faith history of what God had done, not necessarily on this spot, although that clearly is part of it, but in El Paso through the ministries of First Baptist Church. And so he sent me a couple of books. Did you know that we have two histories written of our church? Uh, all right, so I'm going to come to make a point. I'll just go ahead and make that point now. One of the things that we must do in every generation of leadership is we need to make sure that we're passing on our history to those people who come into the fellowship um, as a course, as a matter of course of life, right? Because if they lose, or if I, in, in this case, if I came in as pastor especially and had no working knowledge of what God had done here, um, I would miss out. But I, I would also set myself up for some real problems uh, because you don't just appear on the planet with no context, as an adult at least, right? So we need to hang on to that. But not only do we need to hang on to it, we need to teach people as they come into our fellowship so they know who they're, who they're coming from. I, I, I ran into this in Edinburgh when I was pastor there, and I've been there for 20 years. And we started seeing families join our church and they were coming from other churches. A lot of them were coming from other churches. And we started picking up deacons who were coming from other churches. And one of the things that uh, I noticed almost immediately was that as deacons came in, all they knew about being a deacon was what another church had taught them about how they did it. But because we're Baptists, we are autonomous. We get to make our own choices about how we do things. And so there needed to be an education process for our deacons as they came in from other churches because all they knew was where they had come from, and our church was very different in the way we functioned with our deacons. And that started exploding out for me. I think I've told some of you. I got a call one day from one of our church members and said, Pastor, I did not know that Baptists pray to Mary. <laughs> that was not here, just so you know. This was in Edinburgh. And my response to them was, I didn't either. I, I mean, I've, I've, been to, I've been to seminary and everything. I didn't know that. Well, the answer is we don't, right? But what had happened is we had reached enough people from the community and brought them in, baptized them and all that stuff, brought them into our church, and they began to teach in places. And this one lady, bless her heart, sweet lady, but... She was teaching in the kindergarten Sunday school, 
and they were talking about prayer, and she told them all she knew about prayer, which is what she had learned in CCD classes. You see what I'm saying? We have to be really effective and determined to make sure that we are continuing to lay out the history of this church as people come in. You with me? Okay, and let's go back to the ark for a minute and let's hang on to what happened. That was not just customs that they had. He was not just promoting, okay, on the third Monday of every month, you walk up the mountain, turn around four times, and walk down. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about something where God met with them. Yes, sir. Yeah. I was about the history of uh, where, why they were in Jerusalem was because Moses in Deuteronomy had been reminding them that where God is going to choose, where God is going to choose. Yeah. And when they crossed the Jordan, they landed at Mizpah, mm-hmm. and then later on they shifted to Shiloh, and then finally yeah, yeah, and that actually, there, there's a few other places in there where the ark went. We're going to talk about that in just a second, but you're right. It ended up there, and, that's, and the reason it ended up there is because David said, bring it here. All right, so before we go further into that, let's kind of dig in a little bit. I want to hear from you. What is some of the history of our church where God has shown up in the life of this church? Let me give you a point of reference. When I got to Lumberton, um, that was seven years ago tomorrow that we met with that committee. Um, amazing how that worked. Every seven years. That, no, that's not true. I'm done. I'm done. Um, but, yeah, I'm not trying to leave. I don't, I'm home. I'm home. Um, I lost my train of thought totally. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, at Lumberton. One. Thank you very much. Sorry, I just took a little trip, and now I'm back. So we'll go. So one of the things, one of the stories that I kept hearing in Lumberton, it bothered me at first. Okay, because I didn't fully understand the principle that we're talking about here. But I kept hearing this repetition of a story of how that church, now when I got there, it was their 30th year, so they didn't have a whole lot of history. Uh, But when I got there, I started hearing this story, and I probably heard different people tell it 10 or 15 times in the six years that we were there. But it was about a youth revival that they had in that church probably 10 years into its history. Um, The head football coach at the high school and athletic director, same guy, uh, had all of his coaches who were coming, you know, he, he didn't make them come to church, but he strongly encouraged them to come to that church. Uh, and then so they started, you know, saying to the kids, he would let practice out on Wednesday night so kids could go to church. And he would say, if you're not going to church, I know a good one you can go to. So they started, to, and so they scheduled a youth revival that was scheduled for three nights. Before it was over with, that youth revival lasted two weeks. And they extended it one night at a time after that first little drive. And the reason they did is because kids were coming and kids were accepting Christ. And they baptized dozens of kids over that two-week stretch. Okay, so why would it bother me that I kept hearing that story? Okay, that's it. For me, that was the last time 
that they could go to something that had happened in that church and pin it down and say, God showed up on this event. Okay? But I came to appreciate the story because they're, you know, people are smart. You, you know, my dad used to say, quality is hard to find, but it's not hard to recognize. Let me push it a different way. When the Holy Spirit shows up, you recognize it. Right? And I, I understand theologically the Holy Spirit's here. He dwells each one of us. You understand what I mean. When, he, when God does a work in a church, then people recognize that. So that's part of this ark thing, right? And so these pilgrims are showing up. Either they're on their way or they're in Jerusalem. And their head goes backwards. Their, their mind goes backwards. Think about the times that God has shown up with us as a people. And the anticipation is that he may just do that on this trip. So let's hear from you. We're 30 minutes, 20 minutes into our Bible study time. Let me just be quiet. That let, first of all, let's see if that's even possible. What, what kind of memories do you have of God doing a work in this place? What is it as we look backwards that we should in, embrace today about what God has done in this place? I'll say this, for the most part, we look at the music ministry. We've had a, a series of uh, music ministers that just recognized throughout the city. To, I mean, one big example is the Living Scene Christmas Tree. And, and it just seems like each one comes in as good or in a different area is better than the, than the previous one. Yeah. Well, I have a history of one of those here. I think it's great. <laughs> I think that when we built uh, Christ Hall, the Lord showed up there because we, we took the leap of faith to build Christ Hall and it was done. Yeah. The Lord had to work in everybody's hearts and pocketbooks to do that. Yeah. Good. Yes, ma'am. I haven't been here that long, but um, the two years that I have been, from the moment I stepped in, um, how kind-hearted, and Elvin reached out, you know, the choir immediately, I joined the choir, and Juan and Julia Ortiz, they were in the hallway, and they just opened their hearts in conversation to me, and it's, it's very welcoming and comforting, and, and I, I feel that every time I come in here. <laughs> I'm thankful. I love this family. Yeah. We were new here, and Within a month of us joining, he went to the Middle East for nine months. There was not one day, not one 24-hour period, that somebody in this church did not call me, come to my house, take me to eat, take me to Bible study, or do, took me to doctor's appointments. And I was new here. Yeah. And then when he came I, back, they accepted him as if he never left. Yeah. I do you one better. Two years ago, Easter Sunday, after 26 years of living in the world, the Lord poured into me like I've never known. <laughs> yeah. Because he, he went to a very ungodly place. Yeah. He came back changed for the better. Yeah. And everybody was asking me, is it changed? Is it different? Hey, it's <laughs> Good. Carmen. Um, Camino de Luz is the ministry, the official 
have um, members of the community. Uh, they now are being baptized. They're part of the Spanish Police class. And they're just part of Holly, first Baptist class. Yeah. 30 years ago, I can even imagine that that happened. Yeah. It's great. And I'm glad she mentioned that. If you had come to this church in 1986, this is a commuter church. It was an old, white, rich church. And everybody drove to church from where they lived in their nice homes as all of the communities around us and never thought much about them. But I have to say that David Lowry, when he came, he did many, many things. But as Carmen said, there was a movement to go a block, <laughs> two blocks from church, yeah. and recognize that people mattered, that these people needed to be here. And when you see our church now, it looks so much more like the El Paso community yeah. than it ever did in 86. Yeah. And that's a blessing to us. Yeah, that's great. One thing that I'm impressed with, sorry. Ladies first. I don't have kids in this church, but when I first came here, Dan was the pastor and now Jeremy. Um, but to hand that over to such an excellent um, leader as well, I, when I come encounter with the youth in functions, they're so mature and they have this relationship with Christ. That is huge in a church because a lot of times kids go to church to yeah. play. Right. They don't go to to have a heart with right. the Lord. And that is huge. And I think we need to really encourage that yeah. more. Yeah. It, it just blesses me to see the young love him so much. Yeah. Let me build off of that for a second, then we'll come back to you, George. Um, one of the things that I read in, in one of those two books, at least, was about the, uh, man, I get, I get all my terminology right. Baptists have these acronyms and stuff through the years. Uh, the Baptist Young, what, what was, somewhere, huh? Was that Baptist Young People's Union? It kind of competed with the Methodist option of the same deal, right? And I've, I've loved, as I go out and visit with our homebound people, right, uh, Teresa and I are trying to build that into our schedule as we go forward. Just, you know, the people who have been here, their world is, and, and can't come anymore, their world is about this big. It used to be huge, and now it's about this big. And so one of the things that I want to do as pastor is go sit down with them, and I just simply ask, so tell me about the church. And what they tell me about is the church that they remember when they were able to be here. And it gives us that context. And one of those people that, that, I don't know if she was even with me that day, they started talking about some of their experiences up on the roof. And, you know, some of, I don't even know all that is. And I, I kind of thought we were getting into area that she probably was more confession than anything. I thought, okay, I'm not that. But, but, but the movement of God through the teenagers here. So what you're seeing is one of those long threads, I think, uh, that's part of the fabric of this. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, when Art and I first joined this church, and I'm going to say seven or eight years ago, everybody we ran into to tell us, you guys come to our Sunday school. Mm -hmm. Everyone was mm -hmm. so proud of the Sunday school that they were going to be so excited. 
about listening, and I was just talking to one of my mom's friends uh, over the, yesterday or day before yesterday, where they talked about how they've done away with Sunday school. They didn't even get anybody to go. And yet this church still has that uh, tradition of having good teaching enough yeah. Yes. With enough classes that there's a variety for everybody to come, and everybody's happy to have you come to their Sunday school. There's no fighting over. I've been to churches where you are this age, you are going to. <laughs> yeah. And here it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's good. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Joe and I haven't been members there very long, but one of the things, of course, friendship was one of them. But one of the reasons that we were thrilled about coming here was the fact that we still had Sunday night church. Mm-hmm. And you still had not necessarily training union. We yeah. had training union. Right. But you've got a, a training right. growth training session, you know, that that's a part of it as well as the evening service and the fellowship yeah. time. Yeah. That was one of the reasons we were so thrilled about coming yeah. here. Church I came from couldn't, I mean, they... We, we tried to do a number of things on Sunday nights, and they just we had we had key leaders in the church saying, "I'm not coming." <laughs> okay, so, so yeah, so that's good. Just experience too, just like the scripture said. You know, God shows up. I come prepared Sunday mornings. I'm excited about it, and I just it's wonderful to have that that family to worship with. Yeah, and and experience His presence. Yeah. Good. We, did I see a hand over here? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, we've only been members here a year, but the growth of the Chinese church is amazing. Yes. Oh, right. Because yes. those people, like, not only do we host them here, but they're going to go back to, a lot of them will go back to China and continue right. to spread it, because it's not about just holding it within our walls. It's about, you know, I think how wonderful, yeah. like, now they're across the street, like, grow, right. grow, grow. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it's a great thing. You're right. Yeah. And that's a long history here. That's right. Uh, can I see another one? Yes. Okay. What about the um, Baptist Pinnacle thing downtown? I've heard about that. Like, is that so, anybody want to tell us about that? Carmen? About the the Baptist Clinic? Yeah, the Baptist Clinic is uh, they are celebrated 45 years. And um, it was, they were put in the heart um Eleanor Paul. And yeah. Dr. Paul was one of the big uh, pioneer from the Baptist Publishing House. And Eleanor Paul, she is a nurse, and she, the Lord put it in her heart to open a Baptist clinic in the downtown area in order to uh, serve the people that they can afford it. Um, they don't have health insurance, they can afford it in medical. Uh, and it's still going. They've been having like any other ministry up and down, you know, but uh, they're in the process to move. They was located in the uh, downtown, it's a Del Centro Baptist, uh, Iglesia Bautista Del Centro, and it's still going, and they need volunteers, and um, it's part of the, the community, it's part of our community. Yes. And it's open every Saturday from 9 until noon. Provide services, or you can provide other things. Yes, and it's been all the all the doctors and nurses. They are just offered their, their time, their volunteer time. And um, one of the good things that they happened in the past is the Universal Medical Center that they now 
Okay. Does that answer your question? Good. All right, so let me close off this part of it. Um, anybody know the name of the first pastor at First Baptist Church, El Paso? That wasn't even Elvin. Hey, that was not Elvin. I, I'm here to, I, I can testify. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Baines is right. Harold Baines? Is that, huh? George Baines. All right. By the way, uh, was he was... And, and he was a great uncle to Lyndon Baines Johnson, if I remember right, also. All right? So let me tell you why I bring his name up. Uh, if you don't know the story of how this church came to be and his role, uh, it's an incredible read. To me, it was anyway. Because El Paso hasn't always been a metropolitan city like it is. And when he came out here, he, great. I, I used this uh, when I first got here a couple of times. He called it the last outpost in Texas. And I've found in my dealings with people of the Baptist building in Dallas, it still is the last outpost <laughs> in Texas in a lot of ways. But let me tell you, this place, this church, has a rich history of God doing a work. And we're a bridge. Every generation is a bridge for the one that will come after we were handed a trust by those people who came before us and said, God has shown up here. God has changed lives here. This has been a ministry center. None of them were perfect, uh, but God did a work through that group of people, and they've handed it to us, and we are the generation that is the bridge now. And there's going to come a generation after us unless the Lord comes back first. History proves to us that there will be another generation that will come after, and we'll have to hand it to them. And when we do that, they're going to either say, thank you, or they're going to say, what in the world were you thinking? <laughs> that's, that's a loaded reality for us. So never fail to look backwards. I love that part of this psalm. We haven't even gotten into the psalm itself. We're just dealing with the background of it as it ties to the Ark of the Covenant. And they're coming to this place because David said, this will be the center. But even before that, God said, I'm going to show up with y'all. And that ark made its way there. That's the part we're not going to get to tonight, okay, because we're out of time and the rest of what I have is a lot, much, a lot harder discussion. So I'll close with this. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Who said anything about change? Here's a reality for you. Here's a reality for you. And this is all through this psalm uh, and the background for this psalm. Um, this church does not look like it did when Brother Baines founded it. Everything's changed, or just about everything. The message hasn't, but a lot of things have. So one of, the, one of the struggles that we have, and we'll talk about it next week, one of the struggles we have is how do you manage change? I hear a lot, and I'll, I'll say this again next week because it's already in my notes, but I hear people a lot say, I just don't like change. Well, you know what? I don't want to call you a liar to your face, but um, people who tell me they don't like change, 
what they really mean, I've found, to be really nice about it, what they really mean is, I don't like the change that I don't like. Okay? Because I do like change because I change the TV channels all the time. I change clothes at least once a day. I change lanes while I'm driving. I change my menu. See, so to say I don't like change is not the full truth. Okay? The reality is we don't like the change that we don't like. But one of the quickest ways for me to kill a discussion about all that God has done in this place is throw the word change out there. Because people start getting uneasy. Okay, so I'll just tell you, I don't, I don't have stuff in my holster here to throw out or say we're going to change this stuff. That's not the point. The point is, as we're going to find in this, that God changed the way he was relating with those people. He met in a thundercloud on top of Mount Sinai. Well, first he met Moses in a burning bush, and then he met in a thundercloud on top of Mount Sinai, and then he met him in a box or around a box, sitting on top of a box, or however you want to say that. Uh, and then he had Solomon build the temple. And that changed. And so there, there are changes that have to occur. But smart leadership. I've never been accused of being smart. But I want to be smart about this. Smart leadership says, how do we go about that so that God's people continue to see God's hand as we go into the years ahead? Okay, we'll talk about that next week. So Psalm 132, let's pray, we'll let you go, all right? So Lord, um, what a great reminder that we have, just, just triggered by the background of this psalm. What a great reminder of what you have done in the lives of people in this place. And I'm grateful that you have helped me to, to see and to believe that those days are not over, that there are still lives that will be touched and that, that this church moves forward into a future that we don't know, but we do trust that you're already there, you're already at work, and you're changing lives. We pray that you'd do that through us, help us to be good disciples who love you and love people and invest well. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.